Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. So we're, we're finished up chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel yesterday, and today we're going to be we're moving into chapter 9. <clears throat> and so just because it begins with, and getting into a boat, <laughs> he crossed over and came to his own city. That, so yesterday, if you remember what's happened, the, sort of the, the background to all this is, did the Sermon on the Mount, healed a leper, healed a Roman centurion uh, servant, and then said, I need to go across the lake to the other side, has to deal with the storm on the sea, and then gets to the country of the Gadarenes and um, drives demons out of two men there and then is asked to leave by the people of the region. So now he gets in a boat and he crosses back over and he came to his own city, which at this point is Capernaum. He has relocated to Capernaum from Nazareth by this time. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And so this reminds me in, in so many ways of the, um, the centurion and his servant, because the servant never makes an appearance in the, in the story. It's the faith of the centurion that Jesus remarks at, marvels at, and, and is the basis for the healing for the servant. So here, Jesus sees their faith. He's looking for faith. I mean, the, the leper, for instance, comes and says, if you will, you can make me clean. He has faith that Jesus can heal him. The, in, in the Gadarene demoniacs story, it's, it's different because those guys are so possessed by those demons that, that there's no faith there at all. Jesus actually just goes on offense clearly gets in the boat and goes to that country just to heal those two guys and to relieve them from bondage. Now, that story is pretty much going to stay over there. I mean, there'll be some crossover. When these guys come back, when, when anybody comes back to the other side, uh, back to Capernaum, back to that, that area, then there's going to be talk about what Jesus has done over there. But but the Jews wouldn't go there to find out. So, so there, there's no faith involved. There's just Jesus saying, I'm going to release these two men from their demonic oppression. And so here he sees the faith of the people who have brought this man, this paralytic, and he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. You know, I used to joke that, that you know, it's sort of the, <laughs> the guys carrying him could have looked and said, what's his legs? That, that's really the problem. Um, but it, it's interesting that Jesus does it this way. And, and I believe that he does it for two reasons. But, but I believe the most prominent reason that he does it has to do with, at some level, this paralysis has to do with sin. There's something in this guy's life whether whether he was doing something and it caused an accident, whether it's a paralysis that's that's put upon him um, because of some sin in his life or whatever, I, I'm positive Jesus is not wasting uh, his time and just being provocative. He is being provocative, 
But but I believe at the same time, it's also an important part of the healing. And the reason I say that is because he doesn't do it with everybody. And and what's really interesting is is that he didn't do it with the with the um, well the leper because that is absolutely connected with sin in the eyes of Jewish people, particularly rabbis, priests, and all that. And the reason I say that is because you have to make a sin offering. Once you've been cleansed, you have to make a sin offering in order to be restored to to the community. So Jesus didn't say to him, your sins are forgiven. Making him clean is certainly a dramatic statement, but he's not going to be relieved of that sin in a in one sense, until he makes that sin offering, he's got to do that in order to be reincorporated into the community. Because otherwise, he's still treated as a leper until he makes that um, sacrifice. Here, Jesus proclaims that his sins are forgiven. And and the reality is, let's, let's say that you're paralyzed, and I don't even... You know, we're not even going to talk about necessarily how you got paralyzed. Could be like Johnny Erickson Tata, who wasn't doing anything wrong when she got paralyzed. There's certainly other people who were doing things wrong when they were paralyzed. That so therefore sin was somehow involved in in their particular paralysis. But it would it would certainly be a wonderful thing to have Jesus look at you and and proclaim your sins are forgiven. So what happens, though? What's the, what's the response? Some of the scribes said to themselves, this man's blaspheming. And, and the, what, what we know is, is the next statement is, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts. So that when it says said to themselves, it means they didn't express this. It wouldn't have been particularly difficult for Jesus to know, to know they would be thinking that. That he doesn't have the power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So who does this guy think he is? He's not a priest. This guy didn't do anything as far as, you know, a sacrifice or confession even is concerned. And yet he stands here and proclaims that his sins are forgiven. Are you serious? And so that that that's it didn't take any special insight really to know that's what the scribes would have been thinking that they would have been thinking that Jesus was way out of his depth and and you know that that um that he, he was not uh charged with the ability to forgive sins that that that's that's way above his pay grade and so it didn't take it, like I said it didn't take a particular genius for Jesus to know that and so uh, he said why do you think evil in your hearts? Excuse me? I was thinking you were blaspheming. What do you mean, why do I think evil in my heart? What about that is evil? Well, it's ascribing the work of Jesus. It's saying that he's blaspheming, and he's not. He's one with the Father. And so when he says this is an evil thing, then then that's exactly what he's saying, is, is that, that I actually do have the authority to do this. And for you to think otherwise is actually to think evil. You're missing the truth. It, it, in the same way that, that it can be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, they are the ones who are blaspheming here by these thoughts because they're failing to recognize the truth of who Jesus is. And so when he says, why do you think evil in your hearts, 
you're judging me, but you're judging wrongly because you can see. You have eyes. You have seen enough that you should know certain things. So you're, they're already, without speaking it, accusing Jesus of the things that they will accuse him of over and over and over again, which is, who do you think you are to do such and such a thing, to do it on the Sabbath, to do it, you know, whatever? Who do you think you are to teach in the temple? Who do you think you are? And so that's the evil thought. <clears throat> he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. It's a, a, a fascinating thing. What Jesus is arguing is, is, is that, that to say rise, and the, the answer to the question of which is more difficult, to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk, the, the answer to that question is rise and walk. Because the, there will be proof <laughs> that will be evident to all if that's going to be possible. If, if he's right, if, so what Jesus is arguing is, is that, that it's actually easier to see uh, that, that I can say sins are forgiven than to say rise and walk. Because there's going to be evidence of whether what he said is actually real or not. It's an interesting thing that, that the way that Jesus uses Son of Man here. Um, it, it's an odd thing. Son of God would be an easier name to understand. Son of Man is a reference from Daniel and from Ezekiel. But it's, it, it's pointing to this, this one who will come. And so Jesus is claiming here to be that. And so as far as Matthew is concerned, that's another fulfillment of God's promise. It's another fulfillment of, of a prophetic word that Jesus has called himself Son of Man here. It's, it, it's not as clear to us, but it would be pointing directly back to Daniel and saying, I'm that one. And so he, he's um, establishing himself as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophetic word here. So, as I said with Matthew, Matthew is at pains always to point in that direction, to tell us who, um, who Jesus is as the fulfillment of a prophetic word. And so when Jesus uses the term Son of Man, that's exactly what, what is happening is, is that he is making a claim to be the fulfillment of the prophetic word of Daniel from Daniel 7 about the one who will come. It was in addition to that that it was also used in the book of Enoch and some of the other intertestamental literature that doesn't make it into the canon of Scripture, but which clearly influenced some of the people who wrote the New Testament, including Paul, uh, also including Second Peter, also including Jude, also probably including Revelation, but then there are other places where Jesus will say things that, that have more to do with Enoch than they do with, with anything you see in the Old Testament, which is not the same as saying that Enoch ought to be in the New Testament. It's just saying there's some profitable stuff there. It's a book that was current. It was pretty well known in the area among Jews. And so, it, it you know, I, I could write a book that has some truth in it, you might not see it directly in the Bible. It would be an exposition 
on something that's in the Bible. And so that that's kind of how that worked. And so when Jesus says that he is the Son of Man, he's he's laying claim to be in the fulfillment there of some other prophetic tradition. And and so he he's not it's it's interesting that some commentators and some quote scholars and they are scholars because they've got the degrees. Um, but the bottom line is that they're not coming to this with, with honest eyes and with believing eyes. And so you'll see things where Jesus never really claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus never really claimed to be God, one with God. And, and in actuality, he did it all the time. Uh, certainly in John's gospel, he did again and again and again. But then in, in, in the other gospels as well. And so he, he's laying claim to being this, this son of man character that Daniel introduces who will come in the latter days. There's, there's two. There's one is the ancient of days, and then there's another like the son of man. And so Jesus is, is clearly laying claim to being that person and in saying that I have the power to forgive sins and then asking them, why do you think these evil thoughts? Then, then what he's pointing at is, is his um, oneness with the Father. When he claims the ability to forgive sins for himself, based on no confession, no contrition, no sacrifice, then he is standing in the shoes of the Father, standing above the priests and the rabbis. And so the scribes are not surprisingly offended that Jesus would have done this. I mean, it really wasn't a surprising thing that they would have that that they would have been offended by that. Because it's not within the power given to just random human beings to proclaim forgiveness of sins to humans. Because that, that's, a, that's something that's reserved for God alone. And here Jesus is giving them a demonstration by, by asking the question, which is harder, uh, which is easier, your sins are forgiven, arise and walk. He's given them a demonstration of the, the ability to say, rise and walk, and have it happen. Then also um, authenticates his ability to forgive sins. So one authenticates the other. If you can do the greater, then you can do the lesser of those two things. And so Jesus proves his authority to forgive sins by having the paralytic rise, pick up your bed, and go home. I mean, it's an odd scene, to say the least. Jesus, I mean, it just if you look at it from just the, the scene standpoint, Jesus says this guy, to this guy, your sins are forgiven. Then he takes issue with the scribes, who haven't said anything at all out loud. And then he turns back to the man, and he says, pick up your bed and go home. And then the guy goes home. I mean, it's... a it's almost like one of those, why didn't he hang out for a little while? <laughs> why did he just go? But in this particular scene, the way that Matthew sets it up, it seems like that, that as he comes into the city, they do this. In, in other Gospels, you know, they come and lay, bring him down through the roof and all that. But here, it, it, Matthew's setting for this it is a sort of a random marketplace kind of an experience. Um, and, and what, what's the response then? We don't see what the scribe's response was, but we do see this. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And that's the fear of the Lord. They saw something here that, that got their attention, shook them up, and caused them to, 
to have to think really hard about what's going on, what kind of power has just come among us in the same way that the people in the region of the Gadarenes had done the day before, and that when they asked him to leave. Here, though, they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So that's the opposite response. They, they saw it, and they glorified God. It pointed to the Father. They knew, they knew that this was a work of God by the finger of God through this man, Jesus. And they saw it, and they marveled, and they were afraid. And, and fear is a positive response to seeing a demonstration of the power of God. There's nothing wrong with having fear in that, because you're beginning to understand in the same way the disciples did when they asked, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We need that. But let me say this um, in closing, because it's really it's what really stuck out to me when I first you know, read the passage to prepare to speak. Um, and that is, is that how do I bring um, people that I know who are who are not in the kingdom when I come before the Lord, does he see my faith in his willingness to save them? Or, or am I just throwing up names? Or am I pleading on their behalf? Am I like the friends of the paralytic, bringing my friends, bringing my family before the Lord and asking for healing and wholeness in their lives? I may not know anybody who's paralyzed that I could literally bring to the feet of Jesus, but I do know this. I've got plenty of people who are not saved in my life, who I need to bear them before the Lord as well for healing and wholeness. And we know that he can do it because of the resurrection. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.